Let's go to the book of John today, chapter 5, as we continue on in this series about life in Jesus, the Son of God. John was one of these men, these disciples who became apostles, who walked with Jesus on this earth. He experienced him firsthand. I, I always love what John says in, uh, I think it's First John chapter 1, where he talks about the things we have seen with our eyes, we have handled with our hands. We have, it's this idea of this, this firsthand experience, and that's exactly who John is. He's someone who experienced Jesus Christ firsthand. And now he writes to us under inspiration of the Holy Spirit about the things that he saw in his life. And what he saw is that Jesus is God in flesh. And he has come to give us eternal life. And today, in John chapter 5, verses 16 through 24, we're going to look at this idea of the Son's equality with the Father. It doesn't matter today if you're here and you profess to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, or if you're here and you don't really know if you know Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is a crucial message to your faith, because this has a lot to do with this idea of what we call theology. And everything that you and I do in life is theological. Everything we do, we say, we think, it all works through the framework of what goes on up here in our brains and what goes on here in our hearts. And what Jesus talks about here today has great ramifications and great bearings on our faith because Jesus is God. And you have to get that. And you have to understand that Jesus is God. And it begins to help us to understand then why he came and what he did and why there are people who are opposed to him. And so we'll look today at at all of these things as we unpack this passage together. But let's read the text together. John chapter 5, verses 16 through 24. For this reason... The Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him, because he had done these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he had not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these, that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son must, does not honor the Father who sent him. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Father, we ask now, as we take a few minutes and we set it aside to look at your word, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would truly get past anything else we have going on in our lives, where we live live very busy lives. We live very cluttered lives, where we ask that just for the next few minutes, you would help us to be able to set those things aside and really focus in on your word, that you would clearly reveal yourself through your Holy Spirit, through the word of God to us. You would solidify these things in our hearts. May we not just walk out of here today with some more head knowledge about Jesus Christ, but may we walk out of here today with, with a heart that, that wants to and, and has been rewarded in knowing you more. I pray today for, for Christians who hear these things that you would challenge their hearts. You would, you would draw us closer to yourself. You would help us to see that sin that, that you have been trying to work out of our lives for a long time. Help us to see it, surrender it to you. Lord, we know that, that we're not going to be perfect, but we also know that means we don't give up. And we continue to follow you with everything we have, seeking victory. Lord, for, for one who hears us today and has wrestled with the things of eternity, has, has turned a blind eye, has, has, has thought, I'll deal with it later, or I respect Jesus, but I don't really think he's Lord. Lord, would you confront them with this truth today? That they need to bow before you to confess you as their Lord and Savior, that they may enjoy eternity with you. And for everything that you do in our hearts today, we give you the honor and the glory and the praise. In your name we pray. Amen. 
Have you ever found yourself in a discussion about the tenets of the things that you believe, the tenets of your faith, with someone who is not a professed follower of Jesus Christ? Maybe you've had that conversation with somebody at work or somebody on the street or somebody at the coffee shop. Let me tell you about one time that, that I had these discussions. I remember a few years back that one day while we were living in Atlanta, it was actually about this time of year, it was right before Christmas in December, and uh, understand that, that in December in Atlanta, it was about 70 degrees, you know, because um, we just love the cold weather, you know. And so I was outside working, I think we were hanging Christmas lights that day at my neighbor's house, and um, I remember I was coming out of my garage that I was approached by a middle-aged woman and a young man who was probably no more than 12 years old. And these two that approached me belonged to a cult that's known as Jehovah's Witnesses. Maybe you've had them knock at your door before. Now, I must admit that normally I don't engage in these sorts of conversations. Um, Typically, all I need to do is share, hey, I'm a pastor at a Baptist church, and I get the, that's great, sir, have a nice day treatment, okay? And and if I'm being honest, selfishly, I don't mind that. I have things to do at home. I, I have a family. I have things I need to tend to around the house like you. But I just remember walking out that day, and I saw that teenager, that 12-year-old kid standing there. His name is Marlon. And, and the Lord just impressed on my heart, to, okay, today's the day, right? And, uh, and we just started talking. And for the next 45 minutes, we stood there on my front porch discussing Scripture. It was a fascinating, if not extremely confusing discussion, because you have to understand something. Jehovah's Witnesses, is, uh, they use a perverted, twisted translation of the Scripture. If you're ever talking to one uh, and you open your Bible, it's going to say things completely different than what they have in their Bible, because they went back and retranslated things to fit their theological scheme. Um, it's a very interesting conversation when you get to someone, uh, I took Greek in college, I'm not trying to be an expert in it, but I took Greek in college, it's very interesting when you say to someone like that, that well that's not really what the Greek says, and they say well do you know Greek, and I say yes I, I do, and they just kind of look at you like well that's nice, you know. Um, so we went back and forth for 45 minutes talking about what the Bible is all about, and that's Jesus Christ. Because one of the, the greatest tenets of the of what Jehovah's Witnesses believe, is that Jesus is not God. Jesus is a created being by God who was endued or endowed with some power or called to do these things, but he is not God. And and I continued, as we discussed, to to point out to this this teenager, Marlon, I I continued to ask him this question, now, now why is your Bible different than mine? Because he would read the passage and then I would read the passage and they would sound completely different. And they left my porch that day, and, and you might not be surprised to learn neither of us budged on what we believed. I invited them. I said, and they said, she said to me, she said, can we come back? I said, yeah, if you bring him with you. Because between you and me, that's the one I was the most interested in. I kept asking him over and over again, hey, what do you believe? You know, have you read this? Go read the Bible. And they never came back. The deity of Jesus is foundational to faith in Jesus. John, in his gospel, shares with us this foundational truth as he seeks to show us how we can have life in Jesus, the Son of God. In this passage before us today, we see Jesus' own recorded testimony of his deity and the reaction that this garners from others. And what we see here is because Jesus is God, he is due all the honor, glory, and obedience that God commands. There are no ways around this statement. Because Jesus is God, and, and Jesus is going to show us in no uncertain terms that he is God, and, and people who were standing there that day understood that's what he was saying. Well, what, because of that, this is what he commands in our lives. God commands honor. God commands glory. God commands obedience from those whom he has created. And because Jesus is God, this is what he deserves from our lives as well. Now, this takes place immediately after the passage we saw last week, or, or somewhat in a, in a very, very short amount of time after that. We'll talk about that in just a second. But remember last week, we looked at this guy at the pool of Bethesda, who Jesus healed. And, and, we, and I told you, there was that, that, that little crucial, it's almost this, this phrase that, that if you and I uh, didn't understand all the context, we might say, well, that's, just, I mean, that's a nice little detail. But Jesus, or John records that this happened on the Sabbath. This whole 
encounter turns on that phrase. This whole gospel turns on the phrase because now this sets up what is happening here starting in verse 16. And what we see here is, is, is we talk about the son's equality with the father. We see this discussion that takes place and these statements that Jesus makes, first of all, of his equality with God in his person. We see in verse 16 the persecution that's initiated. Okay, so, so the man is healed by Jesus. He goes to the temple. Jesus warns him of his sin, tells him to believe on him. The man goes back to the religious leaders, tells him it was Jesus. And then verse 16, for this reason, because he healed him on the Sabbath day, the Jews persecuted Jesus and sought to kill him because he had done these things on the Sabbath. So the healing on the man, of the man on the Sabbath and other healings and works that Jesus would do on the Sabbath throughout his ministry lead to the initiation of persecution in his ministry. That's, it says here, for this reason that the Jews persecuted him. Um, and, and it says then later, he had done these things on the Sabbath. We said, well, it was just one healing. Understand that in the life of Jesus and other Gospels, there, there are many other things that he does that take place on the Sabbath. And, and there could have been other things that happened that day on the Sabbath that, Je- that John doesn't record for us. But Jesus was obviously working on the Sabbath. I told you last week that these guys, these religious leaders, were not as interested in the guy who was carrying his mat on the Sabbath, though they, though they did go after him, as they were in the guy who told him to pick up his mat and carry it on the Sabbath. Because he's going around undermining their authority in their minds. And so the word here that's used to talk about their reaction to him is the word persecuted. And it speaks of continued hostile activity towards Jesus. The religious leaders of Israel were incensed against Jesus for his breaking of their Sabbath traditions. And this was the opening salvo of a battle that would rage for about a year and a half of Jesus' ministry. And the end of this, just so you know, is going to be the crucifixion. This is what begins to drive this persecution, to drive this mission that they would seek to kill him. And ultimately, they will. However... This persecution also leads into something far more extraordinary on this day because John records for us an incredible interaction that takes place between Jesus and his opponents that solidifies and substantiates the theme of John's gospel and and it solidifies and substantiates the confession that is necessary for anyone to find life in Jesus. This is the claim that Jesus makes regarding his deity. We see in verse 17 this proclamation of deity, but Jesus answered them, My father has been working until now, and I have been working. Now, we don't know exactly everything that went on that set up this statement that Jesus made. Perhaps there's more works that Jesus did. Perhaps there are some words that are exchanged between Jesus and the religious leaders. But whatever the case, we see here Jesus has an answer for what's going on. His critics have come out with persecution and hostility. They have come out with a a desire to kill him. And though they may not have stated, by the way, that they were desiring to kill Jesus, Jesus is God and knows their hearts. At the heart of this persecution has been the breaking of the Sabbath. Now Jesus replies in this manner. He claims that his father and he have been working on the Sabbath all along. And this is a treatise on the Sabbath and on Jesus' origin. So, so I want to take just a minute here and discuss this idea of what Jesus is talking about with the Sabbath. Understand that the Sabbath was the seventh day, what you and I would refer to as Saturday. It was a day that God, in his law, had given to his people, set aside for, for worship, from rest, from, from their normal activities. And, and, and I, I shared with you last week about all the other things that the, that the Pharisees or, or the different religious leaders of Israel had implemented on top of this. But first, let's, let's discuss the implications of Jesus' statement on the Sabbath. The implication here implies, the statement here implies that the Sabbath was instituted by God for man and not for himself. The Sabbath, commanded to be observed by God, was patterned after God's rest taken on the seventh day of creation. And there, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, it was a rest taken not because of exhaustion or for refreshment, but because God's creative work was finished and complete. Observe, if you would, in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, thus the heavens and the earth and all the hosts of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. 
Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work, which God had created and made. God's perfect creative work was finished. So therefore, on the seventh day, God ceased to do his work of creation. God did what no one else could do. He created everything out of nothing in six literal days, using nothing but his voice. And the only time he didn't use his voice is he formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed in him the breath of life. And then God blessed and sanctified the seventh day. What that means is he set it aside as a memorial. Every seventh day, because God would then command his people to keep the Sabbath. And, and if you know the context of Genesis, you know it's written by Moses and it's written to the people of Israel as they go into the promised land. This is the history of what's going on here. Every seventh day, all of Israel is reminded of God's creative power. As they rest on the seventh day and they worship God and think that in six days, he created everything. As they go, as they they take a break from what they normally do, they would reflect on what God had done. However, God continues to work on the Sabbath. For God is not only the creator, he is the sustainer of all things. There may be a Sabbath. There may be a day that God gave his people under the old covenant that they were to come apart and rest, that they were to take a break from the normal activities, they were to worship him, but that does not mean that God quits working on the Sabbath day. He continues to hold all things together. He is still keeping things going, giving life to all who live, and acting in his creation no matter what day it is. And so the Sabbath and its ramifications do not apply to God. So consequentially, any man-made or unbiblically founded traditions about the Sabbath, like these religious leaders of Israel had implemented, do not apply to God either. So these are the implications about the Sabbath from what Jesus says here. However, there is a second far greater implication from Jesus' statement That Jesus, in doing work on the Sabbath and claiming that his father and he have been working, is claiming to be God. That is exactly what he's saying there in verse 17. There is no other way around that statement. Just as God is justified in working on the Sabbath, so is Jesus. For he is the Son of God and God himself. He can therefore perform any act of mercy, such as healing the infirm that we read in the previous section. Furthermore, he could command the man to carry his mat on the Sabbath because he is Lord over the Sabbath. Jesus did not mince words here, and the religious hierarchy of Israel did not miss it. Look what happens in verse 18. Therefore, the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he had not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. Because of Jesus' claim of equality with God, The persecution intensifies in the life of Jesus. Now the Jewish leaders are seeking his death, not not just because he broke the Sabbath, but because of his claim to deity. In their mind, he is committing full-on blasphemy. There's a a phrase or a a term that was often used by by the Jews, by, by Jewish folks. They would refer to God as our Father. It was a collective Our Father. Did you notice what Jesus said? He did not say our Father. He said, my Father. And that's not a slip of the tongue. That's not a, well, he says it one way and we say it another way. He was making a statement. I am the Son of God. I am God himself. Therefore, the price for such a thing continues to be death. Now, let us be clear. If Jesus was a mere mortal man, this would be one of the most blasphemous statements you read in all of Scripture. As C.S. Lewis said, Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And they look at him as a liar. That you have said these things that are not really true. The religious leaders would have a point if he was a mere man. But Jesus wasn't just another Jewish man. Jesus is God incarnate. He is the Messiah. He is God himself. Therefore, he can claim he is the Son of God and God himself with no need to worry, a 
apologize or qualify his statements because he has already in his life shown the power of God that he has. But these self-centered religious leaders refuse to see it. And furthermore, understand this, if they confess that Jesus really is who he says he is, that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is God himself, guess who they have to submit themselves to in authority? To Jesus. See, here's the thing. When you truly see who Jesus is, there is no other response except to submit yourself to him. And if you live a life of not submitting yourself to Jesus Christ and his power in your life, then you've never really seen who Jesus is. He is the king of kings. John's mission was to show us or to show us who Jesus is, leads us here, that Jesus is God. Now, let's take just a minute here and talk about this, that there is only one God manifested in three persons. We see this throughout the scriptures. Now, don't, don't be mistaken. We are not talking about there being more than one God. We see, though, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are three persons, yet only one God we have a term that we use, it's not a, not a Bible word, but we, we typically call this the Trinity, the three-in-oneness, or perhaps the triunity of God. Jesus is the second member of this. He is God the Son. He is God. He is God in flesh, and he lived here on earth, as John records, and so we see exactly who Jesus is. And over the years, as I mentioned to you in the introduction this morning, false religions and those who follow them claim that Jesus is not God. They will tell you that Jesus never said he was God and that it's nothing but a lie. If someone ever tells you that Jesus said he's not God, then you say, if you hold on just a minute, why turn to John chapter 5 and we read this passage together and tell me what you think of it. But don't use the JW Bible. Jesus clearly communicates his deity here in claiming who he is in his person. I am God. That's what Jesus said. And now, he will continue to bolster this claim in showing his work and his judgment. So Jesus claims equality in his person, that he is God. And secondly, today we see equality in work in what Jesus does in verses 19 through 21. We see the father-son relationship that Jesus refers to. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son also does in like manner. Now perhaps someone could, could look at these verses that we have just looked at and they can make an attempt to argue that, well, maybe, you know, maybe Jesus was just really misunderstood. Maybe Jesus wasn't really saying, maybe he meant to say our father, and he said my father, and now the religious leaders are jumping down his throat, and maybe John just misremembered all of that, and John didn't really understand what Jesus was saying. Perhaps they were seeking to kill Jesus because they didn't really understand what he claimed. If that is the case, and someone tries to make that argument, the, the argument against what they're saying grows even greater here. Jesus leaves no doubt. Jesus introduces this next statement with a phrase that only John records in his gospel. You have it there as most assuredly, or perhaps it says truly, truly in the scriptures before you. This statement is one that emphasizes the veracity of what comes next. When, when, when Jesus leads with this phrase, truly, truly, or, or most assuredly, what he's saying is this is what is true. Do not miss this. He is not to be mistaken in what he's about to say, that it is the absolute truth. And what he says ties him to the Father and his healing that day and in all his works. Jesus says in verse, uh, in verse 19 that he does not do these things. I'm sorry, that, that he does, do the, does those things that only the Father does. The Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do for whatever he does. The Son also does in like in, in, the, in like manner. Jesus was on earth in accordance with God's plan of redemption, God the Father, and Jesus always acts in perfect harmony with God the Father, for he and the Father are one. But even as Jesus was on earth in, in, in God's perfect plan of redemption, he never ceased to be God. He always knew what the Father did because he was God. And here's the thing. You and I, 
can know some of the things that God does. Do you know how you know what God does? You read the Bible. You open the word of God and you read here and God says that he is the creator, he is the sustainer of life. You know what God does. You read here and God says that he is the redeemer, that he has come to call you to new life. You know what God does. You read here that God says, I will never leave you or forsake you. You know what God does. You know how Jesus knew what God did? He didn't know because God told him. He knew because he is God. He has an innate knowledge of everything that God does because he is God himself. And so, he, therefore, he continues to act out of the things of God on this earth in his life. What the Father does, the Son does. And, and all the works of God belong to Jesus, the Son of God. And, and to see Jesus act is to see God act. Furthermore, Jesus does nothing without God the Father's approval. And, and admittedly, if you're trying to wrap your head around this triunity of, of, of the three-in-oneness of God. This might be a little bit where the brain kind of goes, Poof, like, okay, I didn't really quite understand that, but I'm going to trust it. Because here is God the Son submitting himself to God the Father, but they're the same God. Suffice to say, we may not be able to fully wrap our minds around it, but that is what's so amazing about our infinite, eternal God. Jesus, as God the Son, experiences the eternal love of God the Father. Notice what Jesus says there. He says in verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. This is an interesting word that Jesus uses here. A lot of times when you read the word love in the New Testament, you think of agape, which is that selfless, sacrificial love that is a choice. This is not that word. This word is the word phileo, and it speaks of an affectionate, familial love. It is the only time that this word is used in context of Jesus and God. And and, and it is the present tense, and it communicates this truth. It communicates the love of God for the Son is uninterrupted and ongoing for all time. And it also means that that, that Jesus is incapable of being unaware of what the will of God the Father is. So therefore, Jesus always acts in accordance with God the Father's eternal plan. The works he does never contradict who God is or what he has said, for he is God. The things the Father has shown the Son and Jesus has done are great works. I mean, instantaneously healing a man of a 38-year-long infirmity is a great work, especially in the day of Jesus. But perhaps, especially at that time, perhaps people could explain those things away. Perhaps they can make an attempt at, well, this happened or that happened. or you know. And I told you last week about the superstition surrounding the pool of Bethesda. Well, maybe he got in the pool finally and he got healed. Or... And so look what Jesus says at the end of verse 20. He says, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Jesus says, hey, you want to try to explain these things away? You want to try not to believe them? God's going to show, us greater, show you greater things through me. And Jesus jumps right into that in verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. Jesus claims that he, as God, has power over death. Jesus goes straight for, for one of the greater works that is ever seen in himself as God. He will show that he can do things that only God can do. He shows here he has power over death itself. Sometime in the, in the late first, second century or so, there was a Jewish rabbi who taught that there are three keys held by God alone and entrusted to no one else. He called them the key of rain, the key of the womb, and the key of the resurrection of the dead. And one commentator said this, among the unique characteristics of God in the Old Testament, perhaps none is more significant than God as the life giver. The power to give and sustain life belongs to God. 
The power then to call someone back from the dead is necessarily also God's. And throughout the Old Testament, you will read certain instances of God bringing people back to life. Jesus, as God in flesh, would also possess this power. Throughout his ministry, he would also raise people back from death. That's his power over physical life and death. But furthermore, Jesus was on a mission to seek and to save the lost. He was on mission to give mankind spiritual life. Outside of God, you and I have no hope of eternal life. We are dead, as the Bible says, in our trespasses and sins. It is God who must make us alive. And Jesus is the means by which this comes to pass in his death and resurrection. Remember what Jesus said just last chapter in John chapter 4, verse 14. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus gives life. When the work of Jesus Christ was complete, Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead and he has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Because Jesus has resurrected, we have eternal hope of resurrection. Jesus is the hope of life, both in the world and in eternity. And he does so not as a representative of God, but as God. If you look in the Old Testament, Two of the resurrections you may think of in the Old Testament came in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. When these men, uh, when God was using these men in the, in the northern kingdom of Israel throughout the books of First and Second Kings, there was a unique uh, presence of God in their lives in a godless country. And God was doing incredible things through them and including both of them raised someone up from the dead. Now, I say they raised them up from the dead. Who raised them from the dead? God did, through Elijah and Elijah. He used them as a representative. When Jesus raised someone from the dead, which we'll talk about in John chapter 11, he did not do it as a representative. He did it because he is God. He has power over death. When Jesus went to the cross to die for sin, he did not go as a representative. He went as God himself to give himself for your sin, to give you power to give you life and power and victory. Jesus is God doing these great works, and that work consists, lastly today, of an all-important eternal judgment. We see not only is Jesus equal in person with God, he is equal in work with God, but he is also equal in judgment as God. Verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. We see here there is a reality of judgment. Here we have a defined role given to the Son by the Father. Here's, here's what's interesting. Within the, the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, there are sometimes these defined roles of what they do. And what Jesus says here, that one of the defined roles that God the Father has entrusted to God the Son is this carrying out of judgment. As God, Jesus is the one who will judge all men. As Paul would say, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. God the Father has given all judgment to God the Son. He is the one who came to bring life to mankind. He is the one who came as God incarnate. Therefore, he is the one on whom this whole thing turns. Understand, as Jesus said, his mission on earth was not one of condemnation. We read in John chapter 3, verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I want to stop right here for just a minute. This word in in John 3, 17, condemn, is actually uh, a different form of the same word you have before us here in verse 22. When it says, for the Father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the Son, that word judges and that word condemn in John 3, they both go back to the same root word, but they're different forms of that word. When it's used in the John 3 passage, it refers to outright condemnation. 
Jesus came not to outrightly condemn people, but that the world through him might have life or might be saved. Here, in in John chapter 5, it is used to describe a broader judicial process in which condemnation will be issued to some. The Son came to bring life in himself. However, many will reject him. And if you reject him, you will bring upon yourself condemnation in your final judgment. But do not misunderstand that all will face Jesus one day in judgment. Therefore, Jesus says, honor is due to God the Son as much as God the Father. The religious leaders of Jesus' day accused Jesus of blasphemy because he claimed to be equal with God. Jesus, in turn, claimed that he was due all the same honor and glory as God the Father as he is God the Son. He has been entrusted with the great work of salvation. He has been entrusted with the eternal judgment of all. Therefore, it behooves man to give honor to the Son. And do not miss this. God does not share his glory with just anyone. Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11, which I thought I put in the PowerPoint, but I didn't. So, Isaiah 48, 11 says, For my own sake, for my own sake, I will do it. For how should my name be profaned? And I will not give my glory to another. Yet God does give his glory to who? To Jesus. Why? Because he is God. If you do not give honor to God the Son, you are not giving honor to God the Father. For though they are separate in, 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 in the persons, in the roles in the Trinity, they are one God. You cannot accept one or the other. Rejecting one is rejecting the other. And this is a crucial point to the whole of John's gospel. That if you want to gain eternal life, you must confess Jesus as Lord. And there are a lot of people who go through life who like the idea of eternity in heaven. In fact, if you walk down the street today, right here in Beaverton, Michigan, and ask people, is there a heaven? Most of them would say yes. Those numbers are probably lower than they used to be as, the, as, our, as our culture has progressed further and further away from the truths of Scripture. But, but most people like the idea of heaven. Most people like the idea that, that if, if you die, you'll spend eternity somewhere, somewhere nice. And everybody has their own idea of what heaven is. Most of you in this room, if you weren't here at church hearing the word of God, and you were just left to yourself, would probably say, yeah, heaven probably has no snow because you lived in Michigan all your life. But you ask people the same question, but you you change the last. Do you believe in hell? Well, we don't believe in that. Because we can't fathom the idea that we would ever be accountable to somebody else. People are very willing to believe in heaven, but they're not willing to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and he is God. And you cannot get to eternity unless you're willing to confess that's who he is. And you may have a lot of nice feelings in your heart about Jesus. You may have nice feelings about church and this and that. Nice feelings don't equate honoring God. And that's what, God, what's what John says here in his gospel, that we have to understand that Jesus Christ is Lord to gain eternal life. If you want to find eternal life and new life, you must recognize who he is. The same is true if you want to live life for Jesus. Again, You've heard the message of the gospel. Maybe you came at an early age to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. You generally really know who he is as your Lord and Savior. But that that part of he is God, and so therefore I need to continue to live and hold him up as such, is a part of your life that you really just, you never really done. You kind of like hold on to the ticket, but you're not really interested in the live your life for God part. That's an impossibility. Because God changes our hearts and our lives from the inside out. 
And if he is your Savior, he is also your Lord. And so when God puts his finger on your heart and life and says, hey, this is wrong and you need to make it right, and you do not, you are denying God's power over your life. And if you truly know Jesus Christ as your Savior, you can only continue in that so long before it ends in disaster. Sometimes we sit around and wonder, why do all these things happen to me? Maybe God's trying to get your attention about something. Maybe God's trying to show you something. Maybe God, in his grace and his mercy, wants you to realize what he wants you to submit to him. That's what Jesus as Lord of your life means. Constant submission. The judgment of Jesus is a sure thing. And Jesus makes that very clear with the next statement that ends our passage today. Most assuredly, here's that phrase again, most assuredly or truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. There's a veracity again and a reliability Imputed to this statement because of what Jesus says. Jesus was entrusted with a message. He said, he who hears my word. That's what Jesus meant by that. And what is the message that Jesus was entrusted with when he came to earth? It is the message of his life. It is what we call the gospel. It is this word. That Jesus is the way. The truth. And the life. And no one comes to the Father but by Him. Those who hear this message and believe the Father who sent Jesus will be the recipients of eternal life. The one who has placed full faith in Jesus has already passed from death into life. This is an amazing thing. Did you catch that when we read verse 24? At the end of verse 24, he says, uh, he who, who believes in him who sent me has everlasting life. You already possess it and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. If you, in your heart, have confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord, that God has raised him from the dead, you have cried out to him to be your Savior, you have placed your faith and trust in him, it is a done deal. You don't have to lay awake at night wondering, oh, I wonder if Jesus will really save me. He will. He has. It's done. The security of believers is available to every Christian. It is a done deal. It is a fact. Now, let me hasten to say the feeling of assurance in your heart that you know for sure belongs only to those who are obedient. If you're a disobedient believer, then you have every right to wrestle with your assurance of your salvation. doesn't mean you aren't secure. It means that, well, I don't really feel, and you continue to hold on to this. Folks, I have met with, with people, and they say, yeah, I know that's what God says, but, and if you say but, that's it. Not that I throw you out of my office, okay? I just, I just mean that that's the problem right there. I know what the Bible says, but, then I can tell you why you're struggling with your salvation. Because you do not want to do what God says to do. Or you don't want to do what God's, you, you do want to do what God says not to do, or you don't want to do what God says to do. It, it's living in opposition with, with the king. But it is a done deal in Jesus Christ. There is no need to wonder. There are a few things in life that are sure. Where I grew up, we used to say they were death taxes in Atlanta traffic. But do you ever notice that even the money-back guarantees aren't really what they used to be? With Jesus, you can always be sure of this. Your faith in him is secure. There is no need to wonder. Religion, good deeds, doing these things to try to gain eternity will always leave you wondering, have I done enough? And there's a good reason you wonder that. You can never do enough. Jesus is enough. Now, on the other side of that, 
faith in him, we said, will always bring eternal life. The other side of that, rejection of him will always bring condemnation. You will live somewhere forever. That destination depends on what you do with Jesus. One day, whether you acknowledge him in this life or not, you will bow before Jesus as the eternal judge and Lord of all. And in this life, you will live under a Lord and Master as well. And if you have been set free from sin, Jesus has freed you from from that sin and yourself to serve him and his kingdom. And you don't need to fear the future. You need only be consumed with the present glory of God in your life. You have the freedom to do so. Jesus is God, and as such, He is our hope of eternity and master of our temporal lives. Because Jesus is God, he is due all the honor, glory, and obedience God commands. Jesus is God incarnate. And whatever he did when he lived here on earth brought honor and glory to the name of God, for he and the Father are one. And as such, Jesus has all power as God. He performs these incredible works and holds the keys of life eternal and eternal judgment. Where do you stand in relation to Jesus? If you have held off coming to him, if you have tried to to half-heartedly embrace Jesus on your terms, or if you have outright rejected him, I want you to hear the warning of Jesus' words today. He is God, and as such, he knows the heart of every person. He knows what you believe in your heart of hearts. And even if you think you evaded man's notice by saying the right things, you cannot evade the penetrating knowledge of God in your life. The only right response to Jesus is to honor him as the eternal God and trust him as the only Savior. Jesus' claims in this passage are strong, and they call for your response. You must make a decision for him or against him. That's the whole book of John, isn't it, that you've seen so far? You have to make a decision. Christian, does your life honor your Savior and God? Friend, I fear for you if you profess Jesus Christ as your Savior, but you do not lift him up as your Lord. If you have truly accepted him, you need not fear your eternal state, but you should fear the uselessness you are to God. No, God is not looking for perfection. He is looking for faithfulness, though. Jesus has called us to serve him with our lives. This is how we honor him before a watching world. We need to let him do his work in our hearts, cleansing us from that which we hold back. And may he be lifted up as Lord of all by those who belong to him. That's the greatest truth as a Christian you can live. You can hold up Jesus Christ as Lord of all to other people. Your life, because of God's grace, can be a walking testimony of who God is. No, you don't have to walk around like like some kind of Christian weirdo, okay? I get that sometimes we get that in our minds. Well, we're not all pastors. Okay, I'm just a regular dude. Nothing special about that. I don't go home and shine the halo and put it back on and come to church, okay? Trust me, you ask my wife, there's no halo. Just like you. It is a daily battle with God's help against sin. It is a daily battle to obey him. It is a daily privilege to know him as Savior and Lord. Father, we thank you for this amazing truth that Jesus Christ, God the Son, would come to earth for us today, to, to, to die for us. Thank you that we can sit here 2,000 years later and still read the truths of these things in your preserved word. Lord, what an amazing privilege that is if we just consider the scope of history, if we consider what a miraculous thing that takes 
to have your word in our hands today telling us who you are and what you've done. We are awed by that. We ask that you would have freedom in our hearts today to do your work. Lord, I don't know where people come from today. I don't know everything that's going on in their life. I know many of them as friends. But Lord, even as friends, sometimes there are deep struggles that we have that we don't tell anybody else about. And we ask today that you would do your work in our hearts, that you would have freedom to do so. Listen, I don't, I don't do this very often, but when your head's bowed and your eyes closed, could I ask you one thing today, two things today? One, is there anybody here today who you're not sure that you know Jesus Christ as your Savior and you don't want to be embarrassed, you don't want to be called out, but you'd just like me to, to pray for you anonymously today that God would give you the courage to, to seek somebody out and to seek him today. Is there anybody like that? You just slip your hand up and I'd be happy and willing to pray for you today. Is anybody like that at all? Okay. Secondly, Christians that are here today, is there something that God is doing in your life? You say, Pastor, there's a, there's a struggle in my life. There's something that God has identified in my life. Not just this general thing, but, but God, there's something God has been working on me about, and I know I need to get it right, and I'm struggling to do so. And I need his help. Again, I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to come to you. I'm not going to sign you up for three counseling sessions this week. I'm just going to pray for you. Is there anybody like that? You just slip your hand up and say, Pastor, would you pray for me? Pastor, would you pray for me? Okay, thank you. Father, you've seen the hands. Hands don't mean as much as our hearts. Lord, you know the hearts of all of us who sit here today. We ask that you would have your way. Lord, I pray for, for those who have raised their hands today, who have said, Pastor, I, there is something going on that I, I really need to work. I need help. I need God's help in my life. I pray for, for each one of them. Lord, I love them. I care about them. I want to see you have the glory in their lives. Lord, I pray that you would help them to seek you. Help them to trust you. And Lord, if if they need help and hope, may they know there is a place to find it here or maybe in a friend, someone who can point them to Jesus Christ and help them in these things. May you give them the victory and be honored and glorified. We ask as we close our service today that you would go before us, keep us safe on the roads ahead, bring us back tonight to worship you. Your name we pray. Amen.